Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon as a part of the eating and drinking practice. Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. As we near the end of our summer-long practice on eating and drinking, or what, what one writer that we love calls radically ordinary hospitality. And the last dimension of this practice up on the docket is eating and drinking with God, or what a lot of people call communion. Summer is my favorite time in the city. Every day I look forward to cycling home from work. It's about a mile from our office over on 13th to my house on 26th. And in between the office and my house are about 497 restaurants. And this time of year, as I cycle home around six at night, I ride past hundreds, if not thousands of Portlanders, literally spilling out, not only to the outdoor seating, but then onto the sidewalk, and then into the street, loud, raucous, noisy, lot of laughter, a little bit tipsy, and it's 6 p.m. And there's just something about eating outside in the heat of summer, around a table, with people that we love, food in our stomach, a glass of wine in our hand, if you're over 21, some of you are not. There's just something to that moment, a presence to the person across the table from you, to your own body and even your soul and even more to God. I mean, we live in one of the best cities in the world for food. People vacation here. I mean, every Sunday I meet people on a road trip or on vacation. What are you here for? To eat. I mean, literally, people fly here from all over the world to eat through our city. And I love that. It's one of my favorite things about our city. And there's just something in the deep in the psyche of the Rose City that says, August, 6 p.m., must go eat outside with friends or family. And in this interior homing beacon, I would argue that we see not just a hunger and thirst for food. There are far cheaper ways to fuel the body. Even in the upsurge of the new stoicism and the whole food is fuel movement, still, even in that, I don't know of anybody with an IV next to the bed at night and like a nutrient solution to fuel the machine of your body. We have a desire for more than just fuel, but for what the writers of the New Testament call communion. For a life that is more than what my duplex neighbor said to me a few days ago as I was on our patio in the morning, he was walking to work, another day, another dollar. And then you get home, what's on Netflix, 11 p.m., time to plug in the machine for tomorrow. Is that really all there is? We crave a life of more, a life of communion, not only with other people, but with someone or something even deeper. Call that God, or call it spirituality, or call it soul, or whatever you want. And this ache in our city, and I think across the world, for communion, it goes wrong constantly. The abuse of food, in gluttony, obesity, body image, shame, eating disorders, the abuse of alcohol, and with it regret, and addiction, and even violence, hookup culture, the pressure to project an image at the table, to make yourself 
look or sound smart or well-read or sophisticated or funny or whatever it is for your cultural kind of niche rather than just to relax into the safe place of community. Shallow, superficial relationships, loneliness even in a city of hundreds of thousands of people and yet all of these missteps are exactly that, missteps on the quest for communion. After all, food is at the heart of all that is wrong and all that is right in the world. Americans spend over $50 billion a year on dieting. Think about that, $50 billion to solve the problem of food gone awry. At any given moment, 25% of men and 45% of women are on a diet. American Christians, I read recently, spend more on dieting than on world missions while at the same time the average American family throws away something like $1,500 worth of food per year. Can you imagine what else we could do with all of that money? And this problem isn't just a one-off for, you know, people who have a problem with, like, eating for comfort. Not me, but other people. Um, It's systemic. It's the way our government has subsidized foods that are unhealthy for the environment and for the human body, the way that healthy food is out of reach of the poor due to that and other reasons. It's industrialized farming, it's erosion of the topsoil, it's animal cruelty, it's food-related diseases such as diabetes and hypertension. Now we're even reading dementia. And none of this comes as a surprise since in the Garden of Eden story, what is the frame of our worldview, what was the original temptation that gave rise to the human condition as we know it? Yeah, it was to eat from the wrong tree. However you read Genesis, if you read it literally or more mythologically, either way, you have to wrestle down the fact that the temptation in the origin story that is the frame of our worldview, is not to the triumvirate of money, sex, or power. It is to an even more basic, more primal drive that so often spins out of control to food. And yet, at the same time, food is also at the heart of all that is good and beautiful and true in the world, and especially in our city. Can I get a witness? Cue all of those stats about how human beings are at their happiest when they are around a table with a meal and family and friends. And a statistical level, really the only way to level up from that to more joy is to move that table outside in the summer, which is great news in August. Bad news the rest of the year, but great news in August. So all that's right and all that's wrong meet at the table. Is there a practice from the way of Jesus to quell that ache that I would argue we all have for a right relationship with food and the planet that it is derived from with other people in our community and with God himself? Yes, there is, and we call it communion. It is the collision of all that is wrong and all that is right, of all the pain and the dysfunction and the wrongness of the world with all the joy and the wholeness and the rightness of what Jesus called the kingdom of God. It is where the two meet and the former is drowned out by the latter. On that note, let's start off tonight in Luke chapter 22. All of our practices are based on the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth. This one is no exception. Let's read the story of where it all started. Chapter 22, verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go, make preparations for us to eat the Passover. 
Well, where do you want us to prepare? Well, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the rabbi asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my apprentices? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished, make preparations there. They left, found things just as Jesus had told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, and I love this line, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks, and he said, take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who's going to betray me is with mine at the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves, wait, who is it? And a dispute then also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. Not a great time, guys. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? but I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I, I love this line, I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. There's a lot in there. I just wanna call your attention to one well-known line. Do this in remembrance of me. How many of you have heard that line before? Yeah, a lot of you. I would argue that is one of the most misread of all Jesus' teachings. Two things you need to get your head around with that line in particular. One, the pronoun this, do this in remembrance of me, doesn't just refer to the bread and the cup. It refers to the whole meal and more, to life around a table in community with other apprentices of Jesus, with Jesus himself present as the rabbi or the teacher and the host of the home. Jesus is not just saying, do a cracker and a sip of juice in remembrance of me. He's saying, do life around a table with other apprentices of Jesus, with me right there at the center. Secondly, get your head around this. The qualifier in remembrance of me doesn't just mean in memory of me, like it sounds in English but an actualized awareness of me. The tricky thing about this practice of communion is that in it, time is all mashed up. So past, present, and future all elide together. At the table, we look backward to Jesus, not just to his death, to all of Jesus, his life, his kingdom work, his teaching, his miracles, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the coming of the Spirit, like all of that to Jesus. We also look in our mind and our body and around the table to our community to Jesus' presence in the here and now. And then we also look forward over the horizon to Jesus' return. 
Um, All of the prophets from Isaiah down to John the Revelator, upwards of a thousand years later, envisioned the future as a meal around a table, what the Hebrews called the messianic banquet, meaning a giant kinfolk party for every tribe, tongue, and nation with Jesus at the head of all of it. You think that table is long? Imagine one from here to China or something. That's the dream, the future. Paul later writes that when you eat and you drink, you, quote, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Past, present, future, all allied together. The theologian N.T. Wright in his little book, The Meal Jesus Gave Us, writes this. The hardest thing about the sacraments is they invite us to look at time in a different way. The term memorial does not mean merely bringing something to mind or remembering. It refers in some way to bringing that past story and the divine action of the past into the present such that the present audience becomes part of the story and receives the benefit from such actualization. I love that word, actualization. To remember, to do this in remembrance of me is to actualize that past and that future in the present. Um, Here's a clumsy analogy. Right now, all three of my kids are in swim lessons because they are Oregonians, which means they are about to drown at any moment in the water, okay? So I don't want my children to die. So all three of my children, we're like driving every day out to freaking Lake Oswego in traffic, but it's to not die, okay? So they're in swim lessons right now at my mom's, you know, this this pond thing by my mom's house. And in swim lessons, and I work with the kids often on a day off or whatever, you hear this common refrain, remember, remember, remember when you take a breath to look back and over your shoulder, not up and like, like back over the shoulder, right? Remember, short breath, right? Remember, torso, right, left. Who was on the swim team and is a certified lifeguard? Fun fact, I'm just saying, all right? (laughs) And you say all of this, remember. And, And when I say to my children in the water, like, remember, I'm not just saying call to mind an event from the past. I'm saying drag that event from the past, a swim tutorial, into the present. And I'm not just saying envision the future when you don't die in the pond, but you swim with your dad in the ocean or in a triathlon or whatever. I'm I'm saying envision that future and drag that future into the here and now. Drag past and future into the present and let that give shape to how you move through the world in your body. Does that make sense? Clumsy analogy, I know, but my children are still alive. We're okay, all right? My point is, I think that is what Jesus is getting at. Would do this, do life around a table with other apprentices of Jesus and me at the table. Do this in remembrance of me. Let the past and the future break into the present and shape the trajectory of your life. Now, this practice, whatever you want to call it, communion, is one of six names for it, five of which come from the New Testament and one of which comes from later in church history. In all six names, there is a reality that we are to remember, that we are to actualize, all right? So let's frame that. Let's have that kind of frame our time together tonight. Let's take them one at a time. The first, if you're taking notes, and most common in the tradition that I grew up in is communion. This comes from the Greek word. You might not read that in your English Bible, but it's there. It comes from the Greek word koinonia. You can hear a little bit of the transliteration there. 
koinonia, communion or community. In the English Bible, it's also translated as community, depending on your version, or fellowship, or participation, or sharing. For example, it's used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 10 of this practice, quote, is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in, is what the NIV has, in Greek it's koinonia, it can also be translated communion with the blood of Christ. And is not the bread that we break a, same word, koinonia, participation in, or communion, or community with the body of Christ. And then here's the imagery. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. This is where the name communion comes from. Some church traditions, in particular my Anglican friends, have holy communion, as if to say, this meal isn't just any ordinary meal. It's holy. There's something special about it. And from this first name, we remember, we actualize, that at the table, we are to commune, to have community with, to fellowship, to participate. First off with Jesus, right? The whole point of the table is to actualize Jesus' presence as you eat and drink, to attune and give your full attention to Jesus, to be present to him. David Fitch, in a beautiful little book on communion, writes this, the Lord's table is about presence. Surely it's about eating, but ultimately it's a discipline that shapes a group of people to be present to God's presence in Christ around the table. Here we have perhaps the single best opportunity to train ourselves to tend to his presence for our lives. If we can recognize his presence at work around the table, we will be able to recognize his work in our lives as well. But without such a discipline, we will always be tempted to take God's work into our own hands instead of recognizing his work, submitting to it, and participating in it. The table trains us to discern Christ's presence in all the other places we eat during the week. So it's about communion with Jesus. But not only that, also, and little to nothing was said about this in the church tradition that I grew up in, also with each other. As I said, communion and community are two English translations of the exact same Greek word, koinonia. Two dimensions of one reality. So the idea behind this practice is to enjoy Jesus' company, but also that of your friends or your family, to be present to Jesus and to be present to the person across the table from you, to put away your phone and your to-do list and this and just to commune. That's the first name. Secondly, the breaking of bread. This isn't a name you hear much anymore. It's all over the New Testament. It's the writer Luke's favorite name for the practice in his gospel and in the book of Acts. For example, we read, we already read in Luke 22, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, as well as the follow-up in Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to koinonia, to fellowship, to communion, and to the breaking of bread. There it is again. Here's another one from Acts 20. On the first day of the week, which was Sunday in the Greco-Roman calendar, was kind of the Monday of the week, late at night, we came together to break bread. Now, have you ever read Luke and been a little confused? Like, is he writing about communion, or is he writing about a meal together as a church? And the answer is Yes, because at the time there was zero difference between the two. 
But here's, I love this name for it. Because the breaking of bread is a bit of double entendre. Bread, which was a staple of the first century Mediterranean diet. But remember, this is years before like the bread knife from Cutco with the serrated edge or whatever. Bread had to be broken before you could eat it. And there was no knife. You tore off a piece with your bare hands and then you handed the loaf to the person next to you at the table. In the same way, Jesus was broken, was torn apart at the cross for us and handed to you and me at the table for us to receive the gift of life. In the breaking of bread, we remember, and please listen carefully, that all life comes through death. You are alive right now. You are breathing in and breathing out because something died for you. An animal, a plant, without that, you would die. Food is a daily reminder of sacrifice, of our interdependence on one another, on the planet itself, that we are not independent. We literally need the death of something else just to survive. And in the breaking of bread, we remember, I mean, this is, could God have come up with a more tangible, black and white, visceral message to you every single day, one, two, three times a day, you need somebody else's sacrifice just for you to live. In the breaking of bread, we remember that all of our life comes through Jesus' death on the cross, that we are dependent on him, we're dependent on other people, from the farmer to the grocer to the truck driver to the new season's checker, or Trader Joe's if you're on a budget, um, which we are, um, and the sun and the rain just to breathe in the life of right now. Do you see it? Food is not just fuel, it is so much more, it is full of significance. I love that line in the Psalms, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste it. I don't think that's a metaphor or a simile, I think that's straight up. I don't think that food is a sign of God's goodness toward you, I think it is God's goodness toward you. Right in front of you, on your plate, at the table. Which leads to name number three, if you're still taking notes, which is the most popular across the world today, and that is the Eucharist. This is also from the Greek, a word Eucharisto, which is just, um, it sounds kind of fancy and sacramental now in English. Originally, it was just, it just meant Thanksgiving or the Thanksgiving meal. It comes from the same formula in Luke, but it's in all four Gospels. We already read it once in Paul and Corinthians. Um, the formula is he took bread, gave thanks, the root there is Eucharisto, and broke it and gave it to them. Very early on, I mean, already by the time Paul writes 1 Corinthians, the church started using this as a name, the Eucharist, again, in the original native tongue, just the Thanksgiving or the Thanksgiving meal. And that name stuck around, even when the church spread um, out into the Latin world and then later the German world, and now here we are in English, people, it just stuck around, the Eucharist. And in the Eucharist or the Thanksgiving, we remember just how much we have to be thankful for. Again, that all that we enjoy with God and from God, it's all gift. Nothing is earned, nothing is deserved. I was with a friend of mine who's not a follower of Jesus that I love to pieces, great friend. And we were driving, but we're about to move in a week, my family and I, we were driving by our new place. 
and it's great. And uh, he said, oh man, you deserve it. You do so much good in the world. Like you send out so many positive vibes. I was like, cool. Um, <laughs> but he's like, man, you deserve it. And he's phenomenal. I was quiet in that moment. But what I was thinking to myself was, that's great. I get it. Thank you. But that is so not my worldview. I do not deserve a roof over my head, much less a nice one. Everything is grace. Everything is gift. It is all the sheer mercy of God. And entitlement is a surefire recipe to misery and discontentment. And ah, gratitude is the path to life. And it is the one idea that corresponds to reality. One of my favorite things to do at the Comer House and with our Bridgetown community is just to go around the table. We do it every Sabbath and a lot of midweek nights. And just, what are you grateful for today? What are you grateful for this week? What are you grateful for in this season of life? This week, everybody said, the puppy, except <laughs> yours truly. <laughs> Not what I'm grateful for, right? And we do that, and it's a little bit cheesy. Like I'm with my you know, kids, and it's like, well, we're grateful for whatever, you know? But we do that to index our heart toward gratitude, which is the only right and fitting orientation to life in the world to deeply enjoy, the center word there, joy, life with Jesus in his world, the Eucharist, the Thanksgiving. Fourth, if you're still taking notes, is the agape or the agape feast. Um, agape is another Greek word for, anybody know? Love, so um, more literally in English, it's the love or the love feast. That doesn't translate quite as well. It sounds very 1970s San Francisco, you know? The, you were there. You were in San Francisco, and the, I've seen pictures of Peter, our elder, down there with his hair. He looked like the Unabomber. It was crazy, <laughs> but uh, fantastic. Yeah, big old beard. Oh, I would have loved to have known you guys. Anyway, we digress. It just, the love feast, it just sounds so immoral, but it wasn't at the time. <laughs> And um, this title or this name is only used one time in the New Testament in Jude. In context, he's writing about false teachers. And he writes, these people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. And he goes on. So it's only used once in the New Testament, but it's used a lot by the early church fathers and mothers for several hundred years. In fact, after the Eucharist, it's the most common name for quite a while. And in the love feast or the agape feast, we remember that this meal isn't just a meal, it is a feast, it's a party, it's a celebration. We need feasts, am I right? We need parties, we need celebrations to like give some buoyancy to our emotional health up against the turbulent water of life. I mean, can you imagine a life with no parties? Like seriously, no. All, pretty much, anthropologists argue that pretty much all, and you don't get that a lot, all cultures utilize special meals to memorialize special moments in celebration. Here in the U.S., it's, you know, Christmas dinner, it's Easter lunch, it's the wedding reception, it's the anniversary dinner, it's a birthday party, which is analogous a little bit to how time is all mashed up. Think of a birthday party, you're like, we remember when you were born a long time ago or whatever, and we are here in the moment with you, and we look forward to the next year or decade of your life, and let's eat sugar and carbs, right? There's something, but there's something to, there's an impulse in the human heart. When something good happens, it's like we're hardwired to throw a party. Like, we have to celebrate. Open a bottle of wine. Let's go out to dinner. Have somebody over. I'm on a budget. Buy an extra thing of top ramen. Let's just do it. 
whatever it is, right? Put on the good music, whatever it is. Now, we'll get into this in a few minutes, but when this love feast turned hundreds of years later into a sacrament in the Middle Ages, at least in the West, it became, it turned into, there was kind of a metamorphism into this sober and somber and introspective and individualized practice. But originally it was a feast. I mean, Paul has a problem with people getting drunk at it. We sure solved that problem. Tiny little cup of grape juice. Nobody's getting drunk anymore at Bridgetown Church. Problem solved, right? One sip, no more, you're done. There's always the occasional person in who just starts to drink a lot of them, but it's, no, it's not helpful. There is a time, now that said, listen carefully, there is a time and a place for the quiet, introspective work of repentance over your sin and meditation on its cost to Jesus at the cross. Absolutely, don't misread me, but listen carefully. We are to do that work before we come to the table, not at the table. Paul is explicit about this. Again, 1 Corinthians 11, quote, everyone ought to examine themselves. There's that language of introspection. Examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink the cup. Now again, we read that and we imagine communion in our practice where you walk down from the back aisle to the cracker and the juice at the front of the stage, right? And we think before, like en route down to the front of the stage. It's not what he's saying. This was a meal on Sunday night with 50 or 60 rowdy Corinthians in some wealthy person's backyard, right? So he's saying before you show up Sunday night, before you get off work and you show up for the love feast with your church, first examine yourself. Take a little time that morning during the week. Is there anything in my life that is out of sync with my apprenticeship to Jesus? Am I crosswise with anybody else in the community and I need to make things right? Do that hard work and then come to the table. The table is what comes after that hard work of repentance and the, 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 the right heaviness to that moment. The table is what comes after it's then you celebrate because of my repentance on my part and more importantly because of the mercy of God through Jesus death burial and resurrection I'm good I'm righteous not just in the 80s word but like I'm right with God I'm right with the people to my right and left all is right again in the world let's eat let's drink let's throw a party Philip Yancey writes this, this table is different. It isn't where sinners find Christ, but where sons and daughters celebrate being found. Maybe someday, instead of solemnly making our way to the tables, we should dance for joy. Maybe we should sing every born again song we know. Maybe we should tell our homecoming stories and laugh like people who no longer fear death. Maybe we should ask if anyone wants seconds and hold our little cups high to toast lost sinners found and dead brothers and sisters alive. That's it. That is the heart of joy and gratitude and celebration and party mode. I, I have Sonos. Anybody have Sonos? Like party mode is where like, a, you don't have it? It's, a, it's an app on your phone. It's not, I have it. It's amazing. It will change your life. If you don't have Sonos, it will change your life for $190. It will change your life. <laughs> and if you get more than one, you like click a little thing that says party mode and all of the speakers in your house come on at extra high volume. It's awesome. That's the love feast right there. It's party mode in the kingdom of God. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. 
To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running our resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.